Today, we are going to look at a subject that has caused consternation for thousands of years. It's not something new. That is the question of why. Why God? It's not something new for our time. People have been asking this, and if you are asking it, you're not the first Christian to do so. Before we go into our study, would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father, we are grateful that we can come together on a weekend that looks forward to a resurrection and looks backward to a crucifixion. Please, Father, grant us grace to hear today and grant me wisdom from on high, I pray in your name, amen. Yesterday, as we were having assembly here at Bayberry School, I mentioned to the students that we were going to be looking at an answer, a beginning of an answer. I was going to do my very best attempt to, to share as much as a mortal can. Why? An answer to the question, why? And the more I've studied it, the more I realize I'm very mortal and this question is very big. But I'd like to share what I have seen um, as I was going through it again this morning, I found out that um, I would need weeks to scratch the surface. But I'd like to share a thought today, and I'm going to specifically look at the cosmic conflict today. And then the next time we'll be looking at the concept of suffering in another way. But with that being said, um, I have a little quiz for you. Are you ready? Who said this? Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people. Why is it you have sent me? Moses, that's right, very good. Uh, let's look at our next one. Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Joshua, that's right. Are you ready for the next one? Are you sensing that there's some key leaders in God's work who have been asking this question, why? Here's another one. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And this is a question, by the way, whoever asked this was not the f alone. There's a question I hear probably more than almost any other. If the Lord's with us, why is this all happening to us? Who said this? Someone named Gideon. Here's another one. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? These are some strong statements being said. This is from a song of Job. I will give you a clue. David is on its way up. Here's the next one. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? We'd blame this one, David, but it's not. It's the psalmist Asaph. Here's the next one. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? David. We knew David had to come sooner or later, right? Here's another one. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream 
as waters that fail? I'm hoping this morning that you can sense the depth of emotion and sometimes discouragement that God's people have faced. Are you hearing it this morning? Who wrote this one? This is probably the hardest one. His name? Jeremiah. Actually, the next one's the hard one. I'm a minor prophet. I'll give you a clue. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. I would say this is, this is yeah, the hardest one. Ready? Any guesses? Habakkuk. You will notice that this question of why was not limited to a few doubting disciples. Why has been asked by the greatest followers of God. And so I have a question for you today. How is it that the people of God could have such searching questions about their sovereign king and still trust him? This is a partial study at best on some thoughts found in the Bible concerning the why questions that have been asked throughout time until 2023 this year. I'd like to start in the book of Revelation chapter 12. If you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, and we will be looking at verse 7. Today we are looking at when bad things happen to God's people, the chapter, the cosmic conflict. And while you're turning there, I brought this uh, bag up because I was going to share with you some books that have been written throughout time on why. But I'd like to just share one specifically just because I've spent some time studying it. It's small, so I chose to do the small one first. It's also written by an, an Adventist theologian named Richard Rice. And so this was published about almost 40 years ago. I could not believe it that something in my lifetime is now considered a heritage book. Anyhow, um, so here it is. I am another week or two reading out of it, and then I'm passing this on to a friend of mine. But it's a great, I'll try to find out if I can find some more where that is. Revelation chapter 12, what verse are we starting in? Seven. The Bible says, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. We're going to be looking at two points today. Very simple. The first is going to, um, we'll be looking at deception. If you look in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, it says, and that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. It's important that we recognize that deception is a weapon used by Satan. God doesn't use deception. 
So Satan, if you will, and I'm going to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be misunderstood, but Satan has an advantage, not advantage, he has a weapon that he can use that Satan won't, that God won't use. So Satan uses deception and lying. God will not. So there's a weapon in his armory that he will use against God's people and against God's truth. Satan can convince you that something is truth that is not truth. And that is the specialty, and we must be aware of that weapon. How do you be aware of that then? How do you know that you're not following some cunningly devised fables? You must take time to study the Word of God. Find out what God has to say. God's Word is dependable. Man's Word, especially when we know that Satan is out there, we can make that always. So, as soon as I look at deception, it says that serpent of old. So I'm going to go back to the garden, if that's okay. And when we go back to the garden, I find something very interesting. Um, I know you're already reading it, but let's look at the passage too. Genesis chapter 1 and verse uh, 26 to 27. You know, sometimes when you put your PowerPoints together, you should remember to put the quotation on the slide after you read the verse. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man, what? In our image. And then what's the next phrase? According to our likeness. And then what's the next phrase? Let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There are some things that we don't want to miss here, and I'm going to point out two. One is we are made in the image of God according to his likeness. That's the first thing. Second, God gave humanity dominion over. Now, this doesn't mean um, that you can go out and do whatever you want to the creation. I've got dominion, so I'm going to cut down whatever I want to and kill whatever I feel like killing. That's not the mindset. Dominion means we were put over as caretakers of, right? So we were made in God's image, and we were given dominion. These are two things. Now, I find something interesting. Richard Rice put it in a way I found, uh, I appreciate his thought process. He said, in order to give them, this is speaking of God, to give them, the humans, the qualities he wanted them to have, he had to put a limit on his omnipotence. He said, wait a minute, what are you saying? I'm glad you're asking. Humans were given something called freedom of choice. We were given freedom of choice. This is what gives us individuality. That's why I know that Marcello is Marcello, because he has freedom of choice. This is why my brother Herman is Herman, because he has what? Freedom of choice. We are individuals because we have freedom of choice. Um, to a large degree, our choices actually do determine our behavior. I know that there are some other things that play in at times, but to a large degree, our, our behavior is determined by our choices. We are not slaves of our heredity or of our environment. 
What that means is, simply put, you and I, because we have freedom of choice, can choose what we wish to be to a certain degree. I can choose to be happy. I can choose to be sad. I can choose to try hard. I can choose to sit back and do nothing. Does that make sense? I can choose to look at a cup as half full or look at it as half empty. And I'm not trying to say negative and, and, and positive things. I'm just saying I have a choice in how I operate. Freedom of choice. Because of that, um, something happens. I like to um, maybe put it on this way. This is from the book Education uh, by Ellen White. Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the creator. Individuality, the power to think and to do. So we all have been created an image, and that image is the power to be an individual. Every single one of you in here is different from somebody else, from everybody else. There's no two of us the same. No two fingerprints the same, no two ears the same, no two noses the same, no two backgrounds the same. We are all individual people. And that's made up of freedom of choices that you've experienced, that your parents have experienced, and your ancestors, and so on. Free choice is necessary and very important for this. Love is based on personal choice. If it is not, it is not love. So love cannot exist if there's not a choice. If I was a young person back in my high school days and I saw someone who I was really attracted to, I said, you know what? She is going to be my girlfriend. So I go over to her and I pull out a gun and say, you are my girlfriend. Does she love me? It's no choice, is it? There has to be choice for love to exist. I am so happy that my wife chose me. There was no gun, just in case you thought. She chose me. And so I can say she loves me. Does that make sense? And that is an important element in free choice. In fact, that's a foundational thing. In fact, one of my favorite quotations, this is from the book Great Controversy. It says this, the law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depended upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. Now, it's interesting. The law of love is connected with the great principles of righteousness. Really quickly put, what is love? It's a choice, but what two things consist of love? Love to, God's law is love to God and love to humanity. Am I right? Those are the two foundational points of God's law. God desires from all his creatures the service of love, homage, or worship that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes how much pleasure? No pleasure in a forced allegiance and to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary 
service. There must be freedom for love to exist. Freedom of choice. You know, there was a, not too far away from here, just north of us, there was a colony of people called Puritans. They were all throughout Massachusetts. And there was a guy here who really was a thorn in the flesh of those Puritan colonists. He was a pastor. And he taught something very interesting. He taught that if you don't want to worship God, you don't have to. And they said, how dare you say that? You should, uh, the workman, here's what they said, the workman is worthy of his hire. And he said, that's right, to the people who hire him. And they got so mad at him because he believed that people have freedom of choice to worship who they will. Because worship and love are based upon choice. Well, they kicked him out of the colony because, you know, that's the way we deal with things spiritually sometimes, isn't it? Just kick him out. And so they kicked him out in the middle of winter. Poor guy, he headed south to a place not too far from here and uh, hung out in a hollow tree. Some Native Americans were kind enough to keep him and shelter him. And he decided he was going to start a new colony where freedom would exist. It's called Rhode Island. And his name was Pastor Roger Williams. So there, this is an issue that has been understood for some time. Um, the characteristic of God, this characteristic of individuality or freedom of choice, allows us to choose who or what we love and how we treat others and this planet. I'm letting that sink in a little bit. Individuality and freedom allows us to choose how and what we love and how we treat others and this planet. That is a freedom of choice. There's a, another statement from uh, my new author I enjoy, Richard Rice. He said this, The fact that God shared his sovereignty over the earth with human beings, giving them the capacity to love or reject him, means he is not entirely responsible for what happens in this world. He is not the only one whose decisions affect the course of human history. Let me repeat that. He is not the only one whose decisions affect the course of human history. A great deal results from the choices that we, his creatures, make. You have been given a power. You are created in the image of God. And so therefore, your decisions have eternal consequences. Wow, powerful. I'm not trying to be too heavy on this, but I thought I'd share this. One last statement here. He could not create beings who were really free and at the same time guarantee that they would use their freedom only in the way he wanted them to use it. Melanie, you're free to do whatever I think you should do. Is that freedom? Absolutely not. So we look and say, why doesn't God stop this? Well, then he would be interfering with freedom of choice. 
but wait a minute, there's some really bad stuff. Yes, I know. This is not the only answer, and it's not a perfect answer, but this is the beginning of an answer. Does that make sense? There's so much more. I'd like to jump into the next part that we get here from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the other thing that we looked at here was not just, um, oh, here's some readings, uh, if you would like to do some reading on the subject. The book, Patriarchs and Prophets, the first chapter is entitled, Why Was Sin Permitted? I found it excellent. Um, but I will tell you, the chapter, The Origin of Evil and the Great Controversy, was mind-blowing to me. So if for some reason you don't have a copy, we have a whole bunch of copies back here. And if you only read this one chapter, that'd be fantastic. I mean, I think the whole book's great. But this chapter is an excellent one to answer some of the questions that we're looking at today so much more fully than I can in just a short time. So the second thing we will look at is accusation. You know, it said in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that he accused, Satan accused God's people, how often? Continuously. I think one place it says day and night. 24-7, Satan is working to accuse you before God. He just wants to make you feel bad. Have you ever felt guilt? Now, sometimes the guilt is because you know you did something wrong and the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart. We recognize that. But I have found at times, I have asked Jesus to take something and I've surrendered to him and I'm living my life and all of a sudden comes back and says, Chuck, you're such a mistake. You know who brought that? It wasn't God. It was Satan. And Satan then goes to God and says, you know what Chuck did? And he's a minister of all people. Get rid of him. He deserves to die. He has no chance. That is Satan's job. Get me and then accuse me. He does that to every single human being. I like to look at a story that kind of touches on this some. I have this picture here because I believe that the book of Job takes the curtain of the eternal realm and pulls it back just a little bit so you and I can peek our head in. The account of Job is one of the most incredible ones in the Bible. By the way, the first two books of the Bible written was the book of Job and the book of Genesis. And in both of them, we find out why things happen the way they have. It's like God starts out by letting us know, hey, life's messed up. This world is not the way I intended to be. Here's why. So from the very beginning, we get this Job chapter 1. The book of Job is right before Psalms. Job chapter 1, and we will be looking at verse 9 through 11. So Job has it all. All, all that humans typically want. In addition to that, he has a great relationship with God. He's got great wealth, great family, and a great relationship with God. In Job chapter 1, here's how God describes him. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Satan actually is coming in to do some accusation. He's showing up there in the heavenly courts. He's not there anymore, which is good news. The cross brought him down. Amen? Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? The Bible continues, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, of course he honors you. You take good care of him. Verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. It's interesting to note here that Satan is more than just an accuser. He accuses him again in chapter 2, verse 4. And then in verse 7, it says this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Satan not only accused, Satan also persecuted physically. It's interesting to know this this is pulling back a little bit the curtain so you and I can see that behind the scenes, you and I are small pawns in this big picture, except the good news is we're not a pawn in the eyes of God. You're his children. But these things are happening. They are taking place. Satan is a deceiver. Satan is an accuser. When things difficult happen, you can sometimes look back and say, I don't know why, God, you're doing this, but I do see the life of Job. This happened to someone who loved you. You know, Job really finally got to a point where he got frustrated with God. Not frustrated. Yes, frustrated. Seriously saying, why, God, are you doing this? Why, God, are you acting this way? God, you know me. When I used to walk in, all the people stopped talking because I'm such a revered person. When there was bad things happening, I simply walked in and the bad people ran away because they knew I was going to do the just thing. God, that's who I am. Now, why is this happening? It's a great question, isn't it not? You know what God did? I've got a question for you, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I put bounds on the seas? Where were you when I set it up so that an eagle could fly? Where were you? And he goes through question after question, basically saying this. You're going to have to trust me, Job. I see things that you don't see. I understand things that you don't understand. Honestly, that is hard sometimes. But we must recognize, and the account of Job lets us know, we're part of something much, much bigger. Much, much bigger than what we see here in our family, in this church, in our homes here around Cape Cod. You know, there's a question that is typically asked concerning the great controversy and the origin of sin. And that is the question, why wasn't Satan destroyed right away? Why didn't God just, as uh, my friend Pastor Doug Basher would say, why didn't God just snap his fingers and all that's left is that little greasy spot on the golden streets? Why? Just get rid of him. It's a good question. I like to uh, look at a passage, Matthew chapter 13, just briefly. And then we will close up with two illustrations, I believe, that will help us 
uh, to understand this better. Matthew chapter 13. And verse 24 through 30. We're not going to read it all, but I would like to tell the story. A man plants good seed in his field. An enemy comes in and sows uh, weeds. And he's trying to figure out what to do. And they said, should we pull up the weeds? Because when the, they first started showing, they could see the mixture of different colors of green, right? Should we pull up the weeds? And notice the response. Verse 29. No. Lest while you gather up the tares or the weeds, you also uproot the wheat or the good plant with them. You've got to let them grow together until the harvest. That is the, the, the statement of Jesus in this parable. And it gives us a little background scene of how God works. Sometimes, if God responded instantly to sin, you might question him. Right? Imagine this. There's a good mayor, and I have a picture of him on the screen. He is doing the right thing for his town. It is growing, it is prosperous, and things are going well. The economy is going well. The citizens are happy. However, there's a person in that town who wants the mayor's position. And so they start going on and saying, Mayor so-and-so, you know what he did? He stole money from so-and-so. He did this. He did that. And soon there is this double doubt. You know what someone says? Wherever there's smoke, there's fire. So surely this guy must be guilty in some way. And so they're thinking that he's guilty. And the mayor knows that he's doing this. And he thought, you know what? The guy who's telling stories about me is so messed up that I could actually put him in jail right now and get rid of him because he has so many bad accounts against him. Why not do it? Because the mayor knows if he puts him away then, people are going to say, oh, he put him away because he was telling the truth. Oh. So what does the mayor have to do? He has to do something that most people struggle with. He has to let it play out. To let it wait. I have a friend of mine that was told something about me. Chuck is blank, 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 blank. And this friend of mine wasn't sure if it was right or wrong. And I could tell that they backed away from me. That hurts, doesn't it? The friend backed away from me. I thought, I, I want to say the reason the person who told you this has got some serious issues. But I thought, you know what? If this person is truly my friend, they will see the truth in time. And within a year and a half, we became closer than we ever were before. Because truth will become apparent with time. God knows that. And that's what we're seeing taking place here. You know, um, I've got a little plant here. I don't know if I can reach in and grab this. Nope. I'm afraid I might pull the plant out. There we go. You, got, you see the, the root there and everything? What kind of plant is this? Well, those of you who know what I'm holding in my hand would probably guess within a close area that this is some kind of vegetable, right? Or some kind of leafy green, right? 
Do you know what it is? Now, an experienced gardener could come up right now and look at this and say, hmm, Chuck, this is not an oak tree, right? And no, this is not a tomato plant. I think, Chuck, that is a leafy green. I think that might be lettuce. Wait, Theo, that's right. It might be lettuce. But they'd have to be a really good scientist to come and look at it and say, Chuck, I could tell you exactly that is a Parisian style of romaine, whatever, whatever, whatever. Wow, that's impressive. But no matter how good a scientist you were, you would not be able to look at a plant and tell you what it's going to taste like someday. You're not going to be able to look at it and tell me how tall it's going to be, what kind of root system it's going to have exactly, how big the root system will be. You won't know that exactly because you can't tell that it's in the future. I want you to imagine, for the sake of illustration, that this is sin. All right, no one must eat this plant now. This is sin. Sin was never seen before Satan. No one knew what sin was. And so they see this little plant. Oh, that looks cute. That's kind of nice. What is it? Well, I'm not sure. What do you think it is? I'm not sure. What do you think it is? That smells a little funny. I see a little bit of something in there. And they question, but they're not sure. Does it make sense? And so God can look at it and say, hey, I know what that is. That's sin. Here's going to be the end result. Whoever eats it's going to die. And then he plucks it up and throws it away. People say, man, I want to find that plant. Maybe, maybe it's a special plant that will make us like God. Maybe that's why he got rid of it. Does it make sense? That'd be weird. And so God had to do something with sin as he had to let it grow. He had to let it grow so we could somehow figure out what it is and know the actual fruit of sin in the long run. Why did God not destroy Satan right away? Because God desires free choice, and that's us serving him out of love. If for some reason we serve him out of fear, now we cease to have the choice that God intended. And so he lets it happen. Now, there's so much more. You, you and I realize that you probably left with quite a few questions in your mind. I can't wait to share with you a couple weeks from now. Part two. But this applies in very clearly today with something that we're celebrating today. In the decisive battle of the great controversy that we've discussed this morning, Satan launched an all-out attack on Jesus, the Son of God, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here are some of the things that he told him. You are rejected. Your people are trying to destroy you. One of your disciples is going to betray you and another one's going to deny you. All of them are going to forsake you. You will be eternally separated from God. You're going to become part of my kingdom. Can you imagine Jesus saying, if, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. I don't want this cup. Nevertheless, if you will it, I'll drink it. 
you realize that sin doesn't only touch us. The results of sin touched God himself. Not only do we deal with loss, God deals with loss because of sin. It didn't finish there. The Bible tells us the next day, Friday afternoon, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, taking that final weight, final breath, he cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that sounds like Moses or Joshua or David or Asaph or Gideon or Habakkuk or Jeremiah. My God, my God, why? Why? And we ask why the same reason Jesus asked why. Because Jesus was in a pit so dark he could not see the end. He couldn't see beyond. He was stuck in the darkness of where he was at right now. And the only way he could make it through was not by sight, but by faith. You and I. I would assume all of us have cried, my God, my God, why? All of us have wounds from this war. Some of your wounds are terrible. And you feel like crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? However, I think the call for us is the call that to act like Jesus did. When I can't see through the gloom, I will take the hand of God and I will say, it is finished. I trust you. I will rest in you. After the resurrection, by the way, after the darkness, after the day of blind faith, Jesus was resurrected. There is an end to the darkness we face. There is a resurrection morning. And the words that Jesus said to Mary are such an encouragement today. I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Today, we've started on a, a journey looking at why. And we've seen that we are in a battle. We're in a controversy. And we see that we have an enemy who's caused the terrible things we see. We have questions still. But when you can't trace his hand, as the song says, you must trust his heart. My question for us is that today. Are we willing to trust? Are we trust him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are whys that are not answered this morning. 
But some wise are, and that is we're living in a controversy. And you've given us freedom of choice. We can choose to trust you. You gave your life so we could have that choice. And we thank you. Draw close to each one of us today. And as we celebrate the gift of your son and the sacrifice he made so we could have this choice, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.